Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of And What Do You Do? This time I'm talking to Gav, a musician. We talk about various things in the industry and the realities of being an independent musician. That's pretty broad, obviously, and it's the specifics that matter. So there's not much need for me waffling on pre-interview. Let's just jump straight in. I've got another guest, but tell me, who are you and what do you do? My name is Gav and I am a musician, among other things. What? Uh, well, unpack that a little bit for me. Uh, what type of musician? What's the, the sort of thing that you do? Uh, I suppose it's like a indie musician in that I make music which is independently released or self-released and I have worked in music for theatre and I've done bits and bobs in a way that you would probably call like underground music. Um, it's not sort of mainstream commercial pop music. Okay. Yeah. And that is why I then said, uh, which I've done other things as well, because that kind of necessitates having other means of funding, because I'm not, unfortunately, in some ways, a pop star. Okay. Well, well, let's get into that then. Um, so you do, you do other work to... Do you, do you view it as it's other work to support uh, the music? Or is it even more um, uh, difficult than that? Or is it even more uh, simple in the sense that realistically you have to do this work just in order to do the music? It's difficult to answer that because I feel differently about it at different points in my life. Probably throughout my 20s, I very firmly said that I was working at other jobs in order to fund my music. And that was very clearly what that right. was. I think that I then had a well, I then had a period of a couple of years where I was a full time musician and I didn't have any other jobs and I was able to just use my music to support myself. A few things came together to enable me to do that. But then I had to go back to doing a day job for a little bit, which I was then able to stop for a while <laughs> and then I went back again. And this is normal to people in my situation that are kind of self releasing albums or releasing albums independently and touring and stuff. A lot of them end up working in bars and stuff like that. Right. And hospitality and kind of casual work. And if it's casual work or temp work, it's much easier to say, I'm doing that in order to support my music. This is a temporary thing. This will stop and I will resume the main thing, which is the music. But if everyone's having to do that and having to go back to that, then there comes a point where you kind of got to be honest with yourself and say, well, I am doing that as a job as well, though. Right. So it, it's tricky. It makes it makes the question really difficult when someone says, what do you do? What's your job? You don't know which one to say because you don't want to feel inauthentic in either direction. You don't want to sound like you're making more of your music than is honest and, like, bigging it up more than it deserves. But you don't want to, like, you know, deny it. Because it is a huge part of your life and a huge focus of what you do. Yeah. So yeah, it's tricky. It's actually a really difficult question, <laughs> and it's one that I hate answering. To be honest. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll try I'll try for something else then. This is I mean this is just going to be personal to you I I, I guess. But do you find that the non music jobs that you have are employers? And I'm asking this because I, I've never done something in the same mode that you have. 
do employers sort of accept that sort of thing quite easily? Or is there still a maybe a, a bit more of a sort of slightly conservative point of view of, well, this is the job and you should be doing that full time? Yeah, I've been lucky in that my bosses always tend to think it's quite cool. Right. And when, and partly I, as well, I've always worked jobs where it's been really clear from the start that this is also something that I do. So I'm going to need a bit of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to need extra unpaid leave to go on tour, say, which is quite common, you know? Sure. Or flexi time to be able to build up and take away. So that's always been clear when I've gone into jobs. For a lot of my 20s, I worked for the NHS and even there, it was just really flexible, the arrangement that I had. And I would be really tired in work and like a zombie at my desk and my boss would come in and go, oh, Gav, you've been gigging again, where were you last night? Aye, yeah, burning the candle at both ends, gigging again, oh, well, good on you, you know, keep at it. And then they'd leave and I'd be like, yes. I just had a few pints last night. I wasn't gigging at all. So he couldn't get away with <laughs> You know, I was very committed, by the way, to that job. I should make it very clear. But uh, yeah, usually people tend to think it's quite cool. They quite like it. And actually, I tend to not want to talk about it to them because I just see it as a different world almost while I'm there. Right. I just want to get on with what I'm doing and do that to the best of my ability. But w- would you say that uh, there is an aspect of burning the candle at both ends. I mean, I suppose it's not, or I'm I'm presuming here, but it, it seems like it's not that you've got two sort of half-time jobs. Is that you've got a job and then actually the, the effort that you put into music is more than, you know, bringing up to your uh, 40 hours or 42 hours or, or however you define it. Would that be fair to say? Is that you do put, you're yeah. doing more than a job, you're sort of doing a job and a half's worth of, work each week yes yes certainly at the busy times when you're playing a lot of gigs and stuff if you've got a release coming out I counted it up once and it was crazy the amount of hours I was doing when you counted all the practicing I was doing I was playing in a couple of different bands at the time working full time in an office through the week and it was ridiculous it was like more than is kind of safe but how much you count that as work if the yeah because going out and playing a gig is takes ages it's loads of hours combined for some of that you're like watching the other bands or having a drink or talking to your friends so are you working and it's the kind of thing that i should probably be defensive about and say yes it's all work and we need paid for all of that but is it work? <laughs> you know, because when I was doing just that and getting paid for it and say doing a lot of even music for theatre and stuff like that and I was managing to support myself off the back of my music and I got a good Creative Scotland grant and had some money coming in for some um, royalties for stuff that we had featured on TV. It was all coming together really nicely at that point and I just felt like quite guilty about that because because I would do it for nothing that's the truth of it even I if I didn't get any of that I would be doing it anyway so it, you then feel really guilty where you're like is this what I feel like I'm getting this this is ridiculous even although it's what you've been working towards the whole time 
Yeah. You end up with this ingrained feeling of, well, I should be doing something else, which isn't very healthy. And I know that lots of people in lots of different industries will feel like that. Um, self-employed people often feel like that. But I think when it's something that is fun to the extent that making music is, there's extra guilt comes along with that, or there is for me anyway. Does that also come into it from the, maybe let's say the consumer point of view or the, or the organiser point of view? I mean, in terms of making a living doing, because you're, you're, you're talking a lot about live stuff, do we not value that enough in that are we not you know paying enough for tickets or whatever? Or is it that there are too many people doing it and so there's a sort of supply and demand issue there do you do you have any feeling about that whether it's one thing or the other or both yes it's definitely both it's definitely both way more people want to do it than can do it way more people want to do it than are good at it (laughs) and that will find an audience at all but also it has to be said streaming music in particular and the loss of record sales that that has provided has gutted the source of money for recording musicians. And so there are people with fan bases who, which formerly would have supported them in a decent lifestyle who are now having to work other jobs. So even people in bands like much more successful, uh, way, way more successful than the stuff that I've done who I would naturally think, oh, you must be doing quite well financially and end up working in bars when they're not on tour. And it's quite surprising to see, and it's it, that's people with, you know, thousands and thousands of fans who are going to see them play live and stuff, but streaming their music and the royalties for that are just negligible. Right. Com- compared to, like, CD or record sales in the olden days. So there is a combination there. You would always have skint musicians, and I think there always has been a lot of skint musicians who don't really have an audience. But even getting an audience doesn't mean that you get paid anymore. <laughs> right. So you really have to be doing it for the love of it nowadays. And is there a feeling that, and I'm just coming to this as a, a sort of an outsider and, and also someone who doesn't really pay attention to, say, pop music, but on occasion when I do, it seems that there might be like a tipping point uh, beyond which you are sort of so famous, you then very quickly become super mega famous because you're always the first or the second choice for uh, film music or uh, you know the theme tune or or selling out a massive tour. Do you get the feeling that, that the field, if you like, kind of gets a bit rarefied? That there's, I suppose, let's say the top one percent or maybe point one percent or even uh, smaller than that, and then everybody else is is sort of struggling more sorry that was a bit long-winded but i it, yeah. just from an outside point of view it's it's hard to gauge you know what money is not floating around but you know is is in in the business because you do hear these or you see these headlines of and again it tends to be sort of pop stars making what seem to be insane amounts of money for various things mm-hmm. i think that there are ways of making money. I think even the big, big, most successful people like Coldplay and stuff, they're not making anything like the money that they were. Even them. Okay. Um, even Robbie Williams, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, I'm pretty sure in my age saying Coldplay and Robbie Williams, I don't know who that is now. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, like I even saw an interview with Paul McCartney, right, mm-hmm. who's like, obviously, you know, going to, if you're going to just take it on sales, it's like, the absolute top 
and um, he was saying how funny it is, like how you just don't get that money anymore. So he's aware of it, you know, but they are at such a level that it's a, it's a drop for them, but it'll still be a lot. Yeah. And also, there's ways there's there are ways of making money with it where certainly um, synchronization, which would be the use of your music in other art forms, so usually TV or film. So if your music gets used in TV or film, that you can command quite big fees for that, depending on how much they want to use your song. Yeah. So say if a film wanted to use Beatles songs for its entirety, like that one film did. I can't remember what it was called. You know that film? It was a Danny Boyle, I yeah. think, film? Y- yesterday, was it? Uh, yesterday, yes, yes. So the whole premise of that film requires a huge use of Beatles back catalogue stuff. And they would have had to have paid an absolute fortune for that. Right. And that that's kind of a source of wealth which is kind of rarefied as well, though that will tend to go to the existing big artists. You know, someone like the Beatles, where it's like they want a kind of big tune for a certain place that people will recognise. So that's who's going to get that money. Right. But it can be it can be a good source of money for independent musicians, like some synchronisation. It certainly has been one of the few things that have given me and my musical partners in the past some some money is getting played on TV. So do you have any sense then, is the future that, you know, people are doing much more live gigging? Uh, I'm talking about not the sort of super mega stars perhaps, but the, the, you know, the sort of, let's say, working musicians, if if it makes sense to call them that. Is the future then in, in many more live performances? Or is it that at some point there's going to have to be a, a more profitable partnership with the big streaming companies? Are they at some point going to have to sort of open up the purse, purse strings a bit? It's interesting because I don't know where it's going to go and it could go in a few different directions. I think because so many people want to do this job, it's a race to the bottom in terms of how they're treated so that there'll they'll always be people willing to just mm. do stuff for exposure, you know? So this is the same with a lot of different fields of art. Yeah. So and that will just fuel the streaming companies. So people want placed highly in Spotify playlists, um, like the best of the week Spotify playlist things. There's enough new artists that are just willing to go along with that to just try and get that foot on the ladder, that that's just that'll just keep going. Um, it would take a tremendous effort of musicians to kind of unite against that to actually stop it. And I don't see that happening really anytime soon. So unfortunately that means that, yeah, musicians will continue to be treated badly because of that. Because <laughs> there's new people willing to undercut all the time. Sure. But then again, you know, it could, it could go in a way that we haven't really seen it. The whole idea of recorded music, the way that we consume it now, is really quite new in history. You know, it used to be that you would buy music, you would buy like sheet music and you would play it in your piano in your house for your family. Yeah. And that would be how you shared music. Or you would sit around the campfire and sing the tales that had been, you know, passed down in generations. There's a chance music could go to this kind of hyper-local place. Yeah where it's, it's just really about, it's more like the folk tradition used to be, 
where big recorded music becomes fairly irrelevant. It's not really something that supports jobs, but people wouldn't really see it like that. They go, yeah, that would be a weird thing to do as a job. You know, it's just everyone makes music and especially technology could could help that as well if everyone gets that gets an Apple product has GarageBand on it, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is like obviously me just completely um, hypothesising here. Yeah. But that would actually not necessarily be a bad outcome, I think, something like that. But for me, having grown up in the world of like looking at the songwriters that I loved and looking at the album as a format and saying, look, this is a record with 10 songs on yeah. it. And just since I was a kid wanting to make an album, wanting to make those 10 songs and say something about the world and put that out and find a bigger audience and stuff, I'm really stuck to that that model of production. Yeah in a way that it's, it's it, I think we might be seeing the end of that, but I, you know, it's too late for me. <laughs> I'm stuck doing it. So I'm stuck doing it in this, like, independent manner for this kind of niche audience. Right. And that's where, just where we are in history. Well, let me ask you something about, not a specific project, but the, but the work that you're doing, because I know you've done a lot of different things. So one thing I like to ask people, in creative industries, I'm kind of interested in this, is how do you approach the, as it were, the blank page? Like if if, if you're creating music, how do you, and, you, and you're creating it from scratch, how do you get up in the morning and decide, okay, bleh, I can't, I can't even describe it properly. I, I, I'm just interested in how, how do you, how do you make a start on that sort of thing? It's, it's weird because um, in times that I've collaborated with people, like more recently I was, working in the band slash act uh, slash solo artist Broken Chanter which is really like a vehicle for this guy David McGregor who's written all these songs and he wanted to write with me um, so we had to kind of sit in a room and like write together and it's not something that I'd really done even although I wrote with someone else in my band Over the Wall we tended to write quite separately and so suddenly I was confronted with well, how is it that I've done this and I suppose it ties into what I was saying about having this image in your head of what like an artist is and what like an album format is and what like the right way to go about it is I see it as this really solitary pursuit and it's you, you sit in your bedroom you and it sort of comes to you this stuff right and it just you've been you've been doing it for so long that you don't know how you do it at all it's just something that kind of when you sit down with an instrument you just start playing new stuff so right. if that was to dry up I would be really stuck it never really has for me, but if I had to consciously sit and say, this is how I do this, I, I would not be able to do that, which is kind of scary because that might happen. It happens to people all the time and they say, oh, it's dried up for me. But I have this kind of romantic idea of this like songwriter, uh, even though I don't believe in stuff like divine intervention creatively, you know, that is kind of the romantic idea of the songwriter that I follow which is that I sit and sort of it just comes to me. So I don't yeah. really know what's going on there. I mean, in terms of then working with another person, that must be quite difficult, I guess, emotionally. Because even if you're not writing something like a super sad ballad, you're still putting yourself out there in terms of... It's about what you think, right? So if you're, if you're on your own, at least you only have to run it past yourself before, of course, performing it. But with another person, is it is it difficult to sort of volunteer that stuff? 
Yeah, it is. It's really exposing. There's a point as well. This didn't really happen with Broken Chatter because the lyrics were more David's domain. But if you're trying to come up with lyrics and anything to do with the voice, you're you're kind of singing nonsense while you're trying to figure out what it is you're doing. Mm. And doing that in front of someone is absolutely humiliating. It's like getting naked in front of them. It's really, really strange. So you have to just get like comfortable enough with people you're collaborating with that you don't mind them seeing you like that, like being completely ridiculous and it's okay. And you'll get past that and eventually it'll start being something that's good. But it's really difficult and I think that's why I see it as quite a solitary thing. It's it's going back to me being a teenager in my bedroom at first, like noodling about in a guitar and stuff just coming out. But I suppose then also at some point uh, you do have to, you're going to be performing this stuff and certainly the work that you've done, you've had collaborators or and you mentioned you've been doing theatre, so you've got a whole uh, crew or you're part of a whole crew. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that sort of thing? Yeah, so the theatre that I've mainly done was, I was kind of being brought in because of what I'd done in my own music. So there was always a clear idea of like, we want this type of sound or we want this type of voice in this bit. And that's why I was there. So that's much easier to feel comfortable with because they kind of know what's going on with that. So I suppose it's similar to what I was saying about being a an independent musician or an underground musician as opposed to mainstream. Like I'm not going auditioning for musicals, you know, that's not the model of what I'm doing yeah. at all. I'm like plowing a furrow. And then opportunities might come up as I'm doing that, which I can take or leave. So if someone likes what I'm doing and then says, oh, I want that kind of thing in this, then and that is a good opportunity and I like it, then I'll do it and that's great. So that's kind of what's happened with me in theatre, even to the point where I then ended up writing a play myself. I had collaborators at the start of that, so I had an idea for a play which was really based on the music and the way that the music would come across. And I wanted someone else to write a script for that so that it could be performed by actors. And then as time went on and I worked with other writers and stuff, they encouraged me to end up just writing it myself and then even performing it myself because I had just such a clear idea what I wanted to do. But it came out of really the history of what I'd been doing anyway with my songs and the kind of things I'd been singing about. So that was all just an exercise in finding the confidence to end up just going ahead and doing it. Would the dream then be to get hired to do things where it's not that somebody else has seen something that you've done and said, well, we want that, but more, this guy's got a track record. If we hire him, he will deliver something great, but it will be up to him. Does it work like that? Can Can you ever get to the stage where you've got that? massive creative control but somebody else is bringing you in or does it always come with big boundaries or constrictions i think you probably can get to that point yeah certainly yeah production companies or theaters could speak to you and say you know we want to work with you we think that what you do is exciting and what do you have in mind you know and that's that would be a great position to be in actually even when i started turn the night is the name of the play that i wrote when I first started Turn the Night, actually it was National Theatre of Scotland saying to me, 
if you've got any ideas, you should come and we can talk about how to support you doing that. Um, so that kind of is how that started, actually. I just didn't have the confidence to do that on my own at first. So I wanted other people involved. But the, I suppose the good thing about being a sort of independent musician and stuff is that if there's less people putting money in, there's less people to tell you what to do. So you are sure. kind of just free to do what you want. And if, you, if you're safe in the knowledge that you've got another job which is paying the rent anyway, then you don't necessarily need to make any compromises in what you're doing. So the compromise is in the reach of the thing to the audience, but there's no compromise in the thing itself. And you might think that that's a really bloody-minded and frankly stupid way <laughs> to go about a career. But here we are. Well, I, <laughs> well I, the two things that occur to me, I mean, I mean, first of all, that must be a special kind of feeling of validation when somebody else comes to you and says, we like what you do. They're not saying, you know, you're already employed by us and you're doing a good job at that. Well done. Here's a promotion. They're coming to you and saying, we, who exist independently from you, like your stuff. We'd like you to, to work with us. That must feel pretty good. And then the other thing that occurred is, given that you said that you would do it for free and it, it, you know, and it's a passion, being bloody-minded about your own career is, I mean, that, that's also built into it. That's how you got here in the first place, right? Yeah, yep, that's true. And I also know people who end up getting caught in traps where they're doing stuff that they don't particularly like and it looks hellish. And I've always been quite clear in my head that I would rather do any job than make music that I don't like. I would rather sit in an office and have an incredibly boring nine to five and something that I wasn't passionate about than like sour music for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it, it would be it would be worse than being neutral, right? Because yes. you would have well, as you say, you've you've soured the, the thing that you do love just in order to keep doing it. Exactly. And you that would just kill it. So I'm glad I've never managed to fall into that of course there are some people who manage to get really really lucky and that they do exactly what they want and then it still gets really really successful and finds a massive audience um, mm. but you cannot count on that that's not that's something that would just be beyond your control you know and you can't you can you'll send yourself crazy if you think about that stuff too much and i have thought about it a lot right. but it's not something that is healthy for your mind to dwell on um, you can do what you do. You can be very professional and diligent about bringing it out to as many people as possible. But then ultimately, it's out of your hands how people take to that. Well, I, I did want to bring up something that was maybe maybe tangentially related to that because lots of people they they get a you know they get a qualification and that qualification gets them into employment and then they build up a sort of CV. But with what you do, it seems like you're going to have to go by. I mean, first of all what you're like as a person to work with. I mean, that's that's going to go a long way um, to getting you other work, I'm sure. But also, you kind of have to just look back at the things you've already done, right? That That's that's what your CV is. Is there anything else you can do? Or I realize this is a very confusing question. I'm just, uh, but my mindset is not, I think, the same as yours. And so, you know, I have you know, a CV where I can say, well, I did this and then, and, and then this. But nobody's yeah. actually judging me on this specific piece of work. Is it yeah. that you have a, a kind of a portfolio like an artist and you can say, well, that's the finished product, that's that's what you judge me on? Well, I actually did have to make a CV for my musical career, which is 
a really strange thing to do when you've gone about it and the kind of independent route. But I had to do it because I was applying for Creative Scotland money. So right. Creative Scotland is effectively, it's the old Arts Council for Scotland. So I think the English Arts Council is still called the Arts Council of England, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I believe so, so. Yeah, so that's what Creative Scotland is. So it's they have a fund for open an open project fund, which you can apply for, and they would fund the recording of an album, say, which is what I used it for. And you have right. to, yeah, you have to have a CV. You have to say, here's what I've done. Here's my employment history. And if that's like self-released records or independently released records and small tours and stuff like that, then yep, that all goes on there. The dates that you did it, what kind of audiences you were playing to. It's really, really strange because it feels like you are trying to force a square peg in a round hole, you know, that here's yeah. this thing that you've not done with a career in sight necessarily even and you've not done for money certainly which you're very much having to treat like a normal job it was really odd but the process of doing it actually was quite nice because then you look back and you go oh, I've done all this stuff actually I've ended up with this kind of all this tangible stuff that I can look back on and I can say oh yeah I did I did do that um, and it was quite hard some of it and I managed it anyway so yeah I, I have a CV I think your question there, you were really meaning like how would you judge um, sort of qual- quality necessarily or because you don't have qualifications. Yeah. And I think that there, there was an aspect of it where um, I had these people that I'd worked with. So I had a theatre director, I had a radio DJ that had given me live sessions in the radio and stuff like that. I had these sort of professional references, I suppose there were references. I had them just yeah. write a little bit about like why they liked my work and stuff. And it sort of made me bona fide, I think, to Creative Scotland that, all oh, right, this is a guy who people know of and who has done things that they like. And then that made them feel, oh, it's okay to then give him the money. It's all really strange, though. That didn't feel comfortable doing that for something like making an album. It worked as a process. I did it and I got the money in the end and that's how Creative Scotland have been doing that for a while and they funded lots of stuff that's actually like went on to be fairly successful and stuff, you know, so so it kind of works to an extent. Would you be, would you feel comfortable, let's say, being in that position? Would you ever, would you know how to sort of really drill into it if you were in the position of being able to give out grants and people were coming to you? Do you think you have good instincts for that sort of thing? No, I, I think I've probably got quite bad instincts for that. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, I would know people in bands who would end up working for promoters or, or working at Creative Scotland, say, or, or, or doing some kind of job which was on the other side of it, you know? Yeah. And I would always say that that's all the worst bits about being in a band with the good bit taken out, which is making the music. It's always the, like, painful parts. Right, uh, which okay. is kind of dealing with people that are in it f- for money or people that are in it for because believe it or not you do still get people thinking that they're going to be rich out of it which is a ridiculous notion you know it's definitely the last thing you should do because that lottery ticket you know the chances of you winning that lottery are very very small yeah but you do get that or people just in it to kind of be cool or have this notion of coolness which is really outdated and ridiculous and and yeah, having to deal with that, but not having the good side of actually making the music is just 
bonkers to me. Why would you want to do that? So obviously I'm coming at this from, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't appeal to me at all. And I th- in terms of instincts of like what would make a work of quality and stuff, you know, I've got no idea what other people would like at all. I'm always shocked when I'll buy tickets to see a band and sometimes I'll be like, oh yeah, this, this band's doing really well and I'll go and there's like nobody else there. And, and vice versa, you know, sometimes like, well, this is one of my niche little interests and it turns out everyone loves it. I've got no concept of that. This might explain why I am an independent <laughs> musician who works other jobs, but I genuinely have no idea. Well, on that note, um, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to ask you my, I mean, I have no idea whether it's popular or not, and I always end up sort of semi-apologising for it, but this is my question, is that I'm going to say, unfortunately, in fact, you know what, I'm going to change things about. Usually I say that you can't do your job, and I'm going to offer you a choice of other ones. Mm-hmm. But instead, I think what, we'll, we'll keep it a bit more realistic. Uh, we're going to keep you on a, another job, sort of part-time, mm-hmm. while you can continue your uh, job as a musician. So I'm going to offer you sort of an extra job, basically. The jobs you can have, you can be a traditional weaver on, <laughs> let's say, one of the Scottish islands somewhere. Right. I make up all these questions as I'm looking around my room uh, trying to do things. Um, can it be Harris be... Tweed? Is it okay if it's Harris Tweed? <laughs> it's a tiny little bit of Harris Tweed in front of me. So you can, you can, be, a, you can be a traditional weaver of Harris Tweed, let's say. <laughs> I, I, I assume it's woven. I, I, I don't know enough about it myself. You can be a personal trainer <laughs> or you can work on a well, actually, I was going to say, you can work in a, a chocolate factory. Right. Okay. Um, see, the weaver, is that like in a sort of, is that the olden days? Is it a stage no, no, of history? It's, 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 it's going to be now. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a modern day weaver. Okay. Um, yeah, you can listen to podcasts while you're doing it. It's fine. Right. Okay. Well, it's just, yeah, the weavers, you know, at certain points in history, they were very radical politically so that would maybe suit me better okay uh, so uh, let's go for that and if i get to live in harris that's a beautiful place so uh we'll go for that we'll oh go maybe that. i haven't balanced these out Pe- personal training not uh no no what what if your clients were all sort of rich and famous people does that change it or would that be worse that would be worse yeah because they'd okay. have, yeah more physical ability and i would just be jealous of them <laughs> So, no. Yeah, but you just tell them what to do. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. No. no, I don't like working out. <laughs> so that's, that's the problem. Okay, but and I, and, a cho- and chocolate factory. Yeah, I love chocolate, but factory is what lets that down there. Okay. But no, let me let let me live in Harris, please. <laughs> do the wee thing. I mean, shed. it would be astonishing if this was just a, a very long-term plan to uh, announce that you'd won a competition to go and live in Harris, but I'm afraid to say I don't have that power. Um, but no. thank you very much for speaking to me uh, today, Gav. Uh, it was really uh, nice to hear from you. And, uh, well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Ed. You too. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks, of course, to Gav for talking to me. 
it was, well, I thought it was a really interesting peek behind the curtain of an industry I, I really know nothing about myself. And I think uh, an, a useful exploration beyond how the industry sometimes portrays itself. Or perhaps, if that's me being a bit cynical, beyond the stereotypical image of the industry uh, people outside the industry tend to have. Which, after all, is what this podcast is all about. Speaking of Gav and the podcast, he made the music throughout this and other episodes. I haven't actually mentioned it for a while, which is on me, but all the music is by Gav Prentice, and you can check out his stuff at gavprentice.co.uk, which has information about the man himself and some of the projects he has led or taken part in. Other than that, the usual request to like, subscribe, review, and all that sort of stuff, if you can be bothered, uh, and to check out at whatdoyoudo.co.uk for everything. And finally, to get in touch with me at and what do you do podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'm going to leave you in peace. Take care. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.